Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The sermon for this morning is based upon the gospel lesson from Matthew chapter 22 we just read. If you ask most people, they will probably admit that they enjoy weddings. Usually these are occasions of great joy in which the bride and groom's family and friends come together to help them celebrate being joined together as one, as husband and wife. This expression of joy seems to be the prevailing pattern throughout the world, in almost all cultures and in almost all faiths. It should be especially so for Christians, regardless of what nation or which culture they are found in. This is because we ought to recognize that Christian weddings are a representation of the perfect love and faithfulness which the church, the bride, will have when eternally united with our Lord Jesus Christ, the groom. It's a divine, it's a holy, it's a truly heavenly matrimony. I've noticed that in our day and age, and particularly in our American culture, the one person close to the couple who really seems to be able to relax and enjoy himself at a wedding is the father of the groom. Think about it. The mother of the bride is usually an emotional wreck, much of it self-inflicted, attending to a thousand different little details to make sure that her little girl's day is just so. The mother of the groom, on the other hand, may look at the bride with a certain degree of envy. After all, this other woman has managed to capture the attention and the affections of her little boy. And soon, if God's plan is properly followed, her son's wife-to-be will soon become the one woman with whom he will henceforth share all of his most heartfelt thoughts and concerns and feelings. The father of the bride, of course, worries whether the young buck marrying his little girl will be able to make her happy and adequately take care of her. The reality may be setting in that he is no longer his daughter's primary protector and provider. And even with the understanding that it's all part of the order of God's creation, the knowledge that soon his sweet and precious child will be intimately joined with her new mate may make him shudder. What's more, he probably hasn't seen all of the invoices for this extravaganza yet. He may not have a clue as to how on earth he's going to pay for all this, short of taking out another mortgage or liquidating his retirement account. But the father of the groom, well, he's got it made, it seems. His chip off the old block has shown that he, too, has what it takes to woo and win the love of a young lady. And the expense? Well, a tux rental and a rehearsal dinner are small potatoes compared to what that other guy, the bride's father, has to pay. Yes, the groom's father can sit back, relax, have a few drinks, have a few dances, work the crowd, slap a few backs, and enjoy himself. Things can be different in other cultures, however, radically different. 
For example, this is certainly true of Jewish society in the time of Jesus. It was customary in that day and age that the bride's family provide a dowry of possessions to the family of the groom, sort of as a payment for the privilege of marrying off their daughter. The wedding ceremony and celebration, however, were usually arranged by the groom and his family. In Jesus' parable of the wedding banquet, that's how we see it too. In those days, people didn't just go down and order their invitations from the local print shop or even whip them up on their personal computers. They couldn't just drop an envelope in the mail and trust that the invitation would arrive at the home of the invited guest. No, back then, the process of inviting guests to a wedding and notifying them that it was now indeed time to come to the celebration required a much more involved process and much more of a personal touch. So, when the banquet for his son was ready, the king sent his servants out to the guests to tell them to come. Some of those invited ignored the invitation. Some were downright belligerent about it. They went out of their way to abuse and to murder the king's servants, men who were just doing the work assigned to them by the king. The king's happy anticipation in sharing his generous banquet with so many is turned into an outrage. Is it any wonder, then, that the severity of the punishment the king gave out was extreme indeed? And despite this insult and the unworthiness of his subjects, the king is not about to let this wonderful feast go to waste. He's put a lot of effort and resources into this celebration, and he knows it's going to be spectacular. He spared no expense in providing for the finest choices in food and beverage for his guests. He's giving out the very richest, the very best of everything at his disposal. So, if those who were initially invited rejected his invitation, he'll find others who won't. In a spirit of great generosity, he tells the servants to go out into the public arena. He instructs them to invite anyone who will come, regardless of their standing in the kingdom. Many such individuals are found, and all of them are brought into the feast. No doubt pleased by the large number of people who have finally been brought into his banquet hall, the king then enters to meet and to greet his guests. Another problem soon arises, however. The king discovers that one of his guests is not properly attired. How can this be? Surely, since they had been invited directly from the streets, with no warning and with no time to prepare, the king would have provided these wedding guests with the proper attire to participate in the feast. Yet this man, it seems, had rejected the king's selection of robes. He decided on his own to put his confidence in what he brought to the banquet himself. He had no good answer, no reply at all, really, when the king asked him to explain this. The man's foolish arrogance cost him dearly, for he's hauled away by the king's servants, bound hand and foot, and he's removed from this wonderful banquet. He's thrown outside of the celebration, and he's left to suffer there in misery and in anguish. You would think, you would think that the Jewish leaders to whom Jesus was speaking in this text would have gotten his point by now. 
After all, he told three consecutive parables with essentially the same theme. That is, many would be invited to share in the blessings of the kingdom of heaven, but those who will gladly receive this invitation might not be those who would be expected to. Furthermore, those who rejected the gifts offered by God through Christ would face severe punishment. These leaders were rejecting that invitation, just like generation upon generation of their ancestors had before them, and just as many people would in the many centuries and places to follow. Yet, many had repented of their sins. Many had believed in Jesus as the Messiah, as would many more yet to come. How do you stack up against those whom Jesus is condemning in this parable? How often do you behave like the king's unruly and inconsiderate subjects? When the Lord wants to prepare good things for you, to lay out his lavish banquet for your benefit, do you refuse to come? When the table is set and all is ready, do you ignore his call? Do you wander off in search of your own priorities? your own agenda, your own goals? Could he say about you, those whom I invited did not deserve to come? Well, of course, he could say that about all of us. We daily find ways to bend and twist and break his law in almost everything that we do. And as the text of our right of confession and absolution of sin states, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. We may not have physically seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. But we have no doubt at least occasionally despised his message and his messengers. We have not rightly handled at all times and in all places the invitation that he's issued to us. We might wrongly respond to his invitation in several ways. First, it can be ignored, as the king's subjects did when he first told them to come to the banquet. This happens whenever we refuse to listen to his message, to the word, with open and willing hearts. His invitation can also be rejected, as many of the people did when all was ready and they were summoned a second time to the banquet hall. This happens whenever we find something more important to us than obeying his law and trusting in his gospel, or when we actively resist it because we prefer to live remaining in the sins we enjoy. And finally, his invitation can be received in an erroneous manner. That is, when we won't receive the invitation as it was given to us, Sitting in our own judgment and setting that above that of the king, too often we want an invitation that we can be enjoying on our own terms. That error happens when we substitute our own ideas of righteousness or salvation for those gifts that he provides us by the invitation of the gospel. In this, we behave just like that wedding guest who was found dressed in the wrong garment. He didn't want to wear the garment that was provided by the host. Praise God, though, that our invitation to forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life is not subject to the whims and the weaknesses of our own character. In his foresight, our Lord decides those who will be invited. He issues his invitation through his servants. 
He decides how and when and where this will take place. Many are called, good and bad, using the means that He has chosen and revealed to us. God alone chooses those who will be granted the invitation and received into His banquet hall. He properly clothes those whom He would have remain there so that they may enjoy His company and partake of His rich feast. This Gospel text, then, is largely about invitations. Invitations refused. Invitations ignored. Invitations redirected and corrupted. But it's also about rejection and reception and acceptance. Acceptance of duty by the king's servants. Rejection of the king's invitation and rejection of the king's servants by his subjects. It's also about rejection, strong, clear, and eternal for those who had rejected and even killed some of his servants. Reception of the king's invitation by a new group of people, those who were rejected by the world, but who in turn reject following the world's path. Rejection of the acceptable wedding garment by the man the king confronted, and rejection of the man by the king. <clears throat> Lastly, Jesus' statement that many are called, but few are chosen. How does this theme of invitation, rejection, reception, and acceptance apply to each of us in our daily lives today? Like the parable, it also begins with invitation and rejection. God's invitation and our rejection. Rejection of His authority, His love, and His guidance. And when we reject Him, we stand condemned, sinful and unclean. But though we deserve rejection ourselves, He remains faithful and loving and inviting toward us His unworthy subjects. He wants to make us acceptable. He wants to have us receive His eternal feast. Like the King who spared no expense, our Lord Jesus Christ paid a vast, immeasurable price to ensure that the Father would prepare a beautiful wedding feast for us. The precious Son did not do this by asking the Father to do it on His behalf, but He did it by going and giving up His place in heaven and coming down to us in humility, by living in obedience to the law that we have so often rejected, by facing rejection Himself, and finally, death. And in His death, our sin also died, and we became acceptable guests to the Father. More than that, acceptable children. We could then be invited by the Word of God to join those acceptable people, both good and bad, whom He has had His servants call and find and gather. We could then be clothed with the robe of righteousness, not covered with the shroud of death, for that veil of shame and despair has now been destroyed. It no longer covers all nations with the disgrace of sin. It has been swallowed up forever. Invitation and rejection. Reception and acceptance. By the invitation which comes through the Holy Spirit. By the rejection which was experienced by the Son by the reception of the Son's acceptable sacrifice by the Father, which makes you acceptable as well. 
by the reception of the Holy Spirit's invitation to you on God's terms and not on your own. Through these, you who were both invited and chosen to come to this sumptuous banquet, which God offers us, both as a foretaste in this life and as a never-ending feast in heaven, have those gifts. We are brought to that sacrificial feast at which our Lord Jesus Christ is both victim and priest. Do not refuse his invitation. Do not ignore his invitation. Do not reject his invitation. And do not try to change the invitation into something that you think fits your own notions. Instead, by gathering, be gathered with all of his servants, you who are unworthy, and fill the wedding hall. Be made acceptable in the wedding clothes, washed white and pure in the blood of the Lamb. Everything is now ready. Everything is made perfect. Everything is made yours. In the name of the Holy Bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.